our young people who inherit this tradition of democracy, how, how do we respect where they are and walk it further along and even become more of a model? The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thanks for joining us for Respect and Rebellion, the State of Debate on Campus. You're in for a real treat with this program for a couple of reasons. First of all, we get a window into the Village Square's Respect and Rebellion Project, where they bring speaker pairs to college campuses, and of course, in true Village Square form, Criteria number one is that each person in the pair represents a different viewpoint. But as we say, they disagree, but still keep talking. Second, this program gives a fascinating view into what's actually happening on college campuses. In addition to hearing from our main panelists, we also get to hear directly from students who are involved with or impacted by the topics that we're discussing. Also fascinating is this. I did a double take on the date of this program while I was editing because they talk about cancel culture as a new concept. So I was sitting there thinking, how old is this program? Well, the answer, not old. Just two years ago, many people didn't even know what cancel culture was. And now, how many people do you think we've canceled? Talk about viral Man, this concept spread really fast. So I think this program is actually very timely because it allows us to consider the bigger picture of trends like this that can move at lightning speed now thanks to the internet. But often we miss things when we're moving so fast. Things that our panelists and students were experiencing back then and now we have the opportunity to learn from them today. We are thrilled to present this program in partnership with Florida Humanities as part of the Created Equal and Breathing Free podcast series. During the series, we'll be airing our new fall programs, like the last episode, High Conflict with Amanda Ripley, plus some of our favorite past programs like this one. So thanks for joining us on this journey, and thanks to Florida Humanities for making it possible. All right, let's get on with it. The Village Square's founder and president, Liz Joyner, is here to facilitate, and I'll let her introduce you to the panelists so that we can get rolling here. And to introduce Liz, we have a quick word from Becky Liner, Executive Vice President of the James Madison Institute. Here's Becky. As many of you know, the founder of the James Madison Institute was Dr. Stanley Marshall, a former president of Florida State University. And he served as the president of Florida State during a very turbulent time. I'm sure many of you either attended Florida State at the time or you may have lived in Tallahassee. And Dr. Marshall really helped FSU through that turbulent time, championing the importance of free expression and intellectual diversity in academic life. 
Today, FSU has a commemorative plaza celebrating free speech, and I'd like to read for you the words of Dr. Marshall that are inscribed on that plaza. We have established that the university can tolerate dissent and preserve order and freedom. Peaceful dissent in a university is a kind of love. It means students care enough about the institution to want to make it better, more just, more humane. And you can find a photo of this plaza quote in this uh, JMI report that we have on your tables. And I would be remiss if I didn't point out that the Village Square's own Bill Maddox authored this report. So if you have any problems with the report, go to Bill. So, interestingly, during Dr. Marshall's time as the FSU president, and I know some of you know this, Florida State was referred to as the Berkeley of the South which is probably a really fitting transition for me to introduce you to our facilitator tonight, Liz Joyner. Most of you know Liz as the founder and CEO of the Village Square, a community-based organization here in Tallahassee that has become a national model for civil discourse. What you may not know is that Liz has been called upon increasingly to go all over the country and the world to go into communities and help them establish programs that promote constructive engagement across political, ideological, and racial divides. In fact, tonight we have in our audience a special guest from Australia, Jan Anderson Muir. If you'll stand and wave at everybody, we'll give you a warm Tallahassee welcome. Thank you. We're glad you're here. Now, some of the places Liz has been working over the past year are the University of California at Berkeley, where she established a Village Square-like college project, and the very un-Berkeley-like Brigham Young University in Utah. So needless to to say, tonight's conversation is right up Liz's alley. So please join me in giving Liz a very warm welcome. It is a pleasure to be with all of you this evening. Becky, thank you so much. I wanted to say a word about the college project that we're doing first. Uh, It's called Respect and Rebellion. I'd really encourage um, you all to take a look at the website. I like to think of it as being kind of a destination website because what we've done is we've, we've paired speakers who disagree very vehemently on issues but nonetheless have really solid relationships with each other. And, and our idea there is that that makes it easier to bring different perspectives onto campus. Um, it makes it safe for everybody and comfortable for everybody. And um, some of our pairs are just amazing. I want to tell you about a couple of them. Destian and Robin met on opposite sides of the very contentious, angry abortion debate. This is what they do for their day jobs. It, it's the most important thing to both of them. And they, they basically reached out to each other and met along the way and became friends. And they still disagree just as vehemently. This spring, they were at Texas A&M and Texas State University um, disagreeing there. And, and their, their talk is called What the Movements Get Wrong. And they talk about how there are things that we're missing. There are things that, you know, we both care about women, and there are things that we're missing by having the conversation this way. I've, I've never met anybody like them, and that's the kind of relationship. We've got another pair who are both Alabama attorneys. One of them um, worked for Judge Roy Moore. One of them prosecuted him. 
They are real friends. They have real disagreement. So, and then we also have on the website stories about pairs of people through history um, who've been ideologically different but have nonetheless found each other and sort of just what we get out of that as a people. I, I also wanted to say uh, that what may not be immediately apparent is tonight we have a room full of ideological diversity. We have a lot of disagreeers, agree, agreeable disagreeers in the room. And and I really, you know, I, I think about some of the relationships with James Madison. We've been um, partnering with you all from almost the very beginning on programs. We've got folks here from the Center for Leadership and Social Change who we have been working with for a very long time. We have just so many relationships in this room that are very ideologically different, and it's it's really been a joy. And I want to say thank you to you all because of the fact that this isn't the normal kind of gathering that exists these days, and, and, and I'm very grateful to you all for being here. So give yourself a round of applause. I, I think that this is who we are at our best, and, and I'm really honored to be here tonight. So on these two campuses, I think the main thing that we found that's been really interesting, amazing students on both campuses, amazing. Something they have in common is they were, students are very reluctant to speak up now. It, it, it is different um, than back years ago when I was in school. And uh, and so we found that that was something that they really had in common. And programs sort of had, to, you had to sort of walk a tightrope between having a high profile and a low profile because of the fact that, that you know, especially at Berkeley, they're, they're really kind of agitating groups that are ready to pounce on whatever. Um, and we met a, a professor there named Alan Ross who has been, for 30 years, he's had a 700-student lecture that he does every semester. It's a, I don't know, it's a, it's maybe a few fewer hours than three, the full, but, but it is a very popular class and he walks all sorts of ideological diversity right onto that campus and right off of it by keeping a really low profile. But I think that that's a good story because of the fact that this is a very popular class, political science class at Berkeley. And so I think sometimes our judgments are a little bit wrong about sort of what we're looking at. But I do, I do think that I see, I see a lot of tentativeness and worry about what happens if I speak up and, and, and you don't find my opinion acceptable. So I also wanted to say before I introduced our first guest tonight that in my experience too, um, we've had the opportunity to to work at FSU, and and I really think that we are incredibly lucky to to have I think a model for for broadly how you handle the idea of free expression on campus and respectfully respectfully to everyone. So the work that President Thrasher has done, the Center for Leadership and Social Change groups like the Power of We and agree to disagree who are here tonight, who we'll say a word about later. I, I think we've got something pretty unique here. Tonight isn't about a debate. We've got a lot of, we've got a, a breadth of, of people who have a breadth of experience. Um, it isn't about a debate. Really, I'm going to frame the, the question as sort of like, so we're, we're in a place where things are looking pretty good uh, in terms of being able to sort of um, be respectfully disagreeable. But, you know, how can, how can we sort of take concerns that exist on both sides of the aisle and the, both sides of our national disagreement among our children, our, our young people who inherit this tradition of democracy, how, how do we respect where they are and walk it further along and even become more of a model? Um, a couple of reminders. Uh, we ask that you not engage in what we call team clapping. 
which is, you know, your, your side says something that you kind of like and you go, yay. And then the other side says something you don't like and you go, huh. We try to not be tribal for just this one hour and a half. If you can hold your opinions kind of loosely, then we'll be getting where we want to be tonight. We've also got a couple of um, civility bells out in the audience. Give it a little ding. Oh, my, my father has one of the civility bells. That is really bad news. Um, <laughs> I could be in trouble. So, so we ask that you kind of give us a gentle reminder. If anybody other than me um, says something that's kind of demonizing or vilifying, you can't, you can't ding me. Um, no, you can. Um, anyway, so it is my honor to introduce tonight to you Musa Algarbi, who is a Paul F. Lazarfeld Fellow in Sociology at Columbia University and a senior fellow at Heterodox Academy. He studies how knowledge is produced, transmitted, and put to use, or not, and how thinking is shaped by the institutions and social context people find themselves in. He's been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and a really, really big long list that I'm not going to read. Backstory, uh, Musa got lots of public attention after having predicted that President Trump would win the election. Um, so my, my bet is that we may want to listen to what Musa has to say tonight. Musa. So actually, was it a show of hands, was anybody here maybe six or seven years ago when Dr. Jonathan Haidt was here in town? All right. Hey. So uh, Musa is with Heterodox Academy, and that is an organization that John originally founded. So tell, tell us something about Heterodox and what the mission of the organization is. Sure. So yeah, we, uh, we've grown a lot since the time John was here. So, uh, so Heterodox Academy, what we are is we're a consortium of, uh, now we're up to about 2,500 um, faculty, grad students, and administrators who are committed to promoting viewpoint diversity, constructive disagreement, and uh, open inquiry on campus. Uh, when we started, we were just a couple, like literally like a couple dozen, <laughs> and so we've grown literally a hundredfold. Like you had, in John's over. office, right? <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, we were, we would just meet in John's office, you know, a few times a, a month, but now we have, you know, actual staff and offices and like employees and initiatives, and it's great. So, so viewpoint diversity. Tell, tell, tell us a little bit about sort of the, the value that you see in that conceptually. Yeah, so I, I guess there, there are two things. So one thing that I think is important to emphasize, so, so Heterodox Academy, when we started, we were focused a lot on political diversity in particular. And this was because we understood, because most people understand the value already, especially within educational institutions of racial diversity or gender diversity or socioeconomic diversity. You don't have to convince someone that racial diversity is good or, or whatever, at least not on campus, usually. <laughs> and so we were focused a lot on political diversity. But one thing that we've discovered over, over the course of our uh, time working on this problem is just how intimately interrelated a lot of these different viewpoint diversity challenges are. So for instance, on average, blacks and Hispanics tend to be more socially conservative and religious than whites. A lot of people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds uh, tend to be socially conservative and religious. And similarly, when you look geographically at the areas of the country that are underserved, rural areas, small towns, um, they tend to be more socially conservative and religious than, say, large metropolitan areas. And so there's a sense in which 
these problems are, are sort of intimately interrelated and best addressed together. And when we try to sort of promote one at the expense of the other or just kind of ignoring the other, um, then we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot in a way. So it's kind of, it's in line with the basic concept that universities have structured around pursuing diversity. Well, but it's just, it's like a add-on. Yeah, it's an add-on. And then when we also think about sort of why do we think diversity is important within these institutions of higher learning, I mean, there's a few reasons. So, for instance, one reason why we would want to be focused on getting more people from historically marginalized and underrepresented groups, maybe, would be to help correct for historical mis- uh, for historical injustices or or sort of systemic barriers that create unequal access. So that's that's one reason. But another reason why uh, we're focused on trying to increase different kinds of diversity is because we think, and, and we don't just think this, but actually studies show that um, people learn better. Uh, when they when they are forced to come in contact with with people who are different than them, because people who hold different assumptions from you, people who have different life experiences than you, because absent that, it's really easy to fall into traps of things like motivated reasoning and confirmation bias. And so, Heterodox Academy was actually founded because of concerns on the research side, because we saw that the ways that the sort of ideological homogeneity in different fields was undermining the quality of social research and undermining the impact of social research. That was our why we started. So, so say a word about the homogeneity in the academy in terms of, especially in the humanities, that's really where it is by and large, right? Well, the humanities and the social sciences. So when I say re- social research, I kind of lump them together. But uh, so in the academy overall, the, the ratio of like conservative to liberal is about five to one. In social research fields, humanities and social sciences, it's ten to one. Um, and in certain fields, it's it's much higher than that even. And in certain fields, it's less. But the thing, but there's no field where no there is no social research field where the ideological balance is anything near parity um, or, or representation with the broader society. For instance, even economics, people go, well, economics is much more you know, um, mixed ideologically than most other fields. And that's true. It's true. But, the, but it's still something like a, a five to one ratio in favor of the left, even in economics, right? It's still an overwhelmingly left-leaning field. And that's not a problem in principle, I'm left-leaning myself, like, I don't... <laughs> but it is a, a... It's not a problem in principle to be left-leaning, right? But the problem is that when it's just people who who agree, then it changes the way that... Uh, again, like, it's hard to catch errors. And, 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 and the assumptions that you're starting with when you're designing research can be um, problematic. Because, because we see, see each other's blind spots, theoretically, if we come from different perspectives. Or... In the academy, it's the peer review process, right? Yeah, so peer review is great, but peer review is great. Uh, peer review really breaks down if everyone is starting from the same place, the same kinds of places in terms of life experiences and starting assumptions and methods. Then, because the whole point of peer review is that you would have people who are at different institutions using slightly different methods who, who are, who have different priorities, but are, but are well versed enough in the research to evaluate it, right? And so they're they're giving you that outside set of eyes. But you don't really get that outside set of eyes if they basically agree with you on all the main stuff, right? Um, then then it's a lot harder for the peer review process to work. So so that would be true of other people, right? That other people engage in confirmation bias, but you know, highly degreed people like you and me, we don't do that, right? 
Yeah, I mean, that's, there, there's this kind of assumption uh, that, well, and, and the ironic thing, so going back to the very creation of higher ed institutions in the U.S. and, and in Europe, there's, there was this, like, the, the idea was that education produces just the kind of citizen you're talking about, who's more rational, more dispassionate, who looks at the issues rather than pre- being prejudiced by, you know, by irrational impulses or something like that. Uh, but one of the disturbing things that we see in a lot of the contemporary research in psychology and cognition is that in many respects, highly educated people are, like education seems to have the opposite effect of what we think. Um, so for instance, highly educated people are less likely than most to be prejudiced against others on the basis of, say, race. Um, but they're more likely to be prejudiced against people on the base, oh, who think differently than them. So on the basis of ideology, they're actually, you actually grow more likely to be ideologically prejudiced against other people as you increase your education. And similarly, educated people tend to be, on average, more dogmatic than, than less educated people, uh, less likely to change their mind when can, and, and actually, so the less likely to change their mind thing, um, makes sense in the, well, Okay, I'll circle back to that. Uh, but also more ideological and more ideologically rigid than the general public as well, highly, highly educated people tend to be. And part of the reason for this effect on education is because like highly intelligent people, highly educated people, people who are very rhetorically skilled, they're just better equipped to find ways to stick to their guns. So when you're presented with something that you disagree with, right, you have all of these facts that you can marshal against your opponents or you have all of these, right? Um, and so this is what we use it for. We use we use this, edu- this beautiful um, capacities that we develop here in, in educational institutions basically to advance the, the things that we're, that we're passionate about and to punch holes in anything that we disagree with. And so we do, we're actually sort of better equipped for confirmation to be, to, to fall prey to motivated reasoning and confirmation bias. And, uh, that is just such bad news. <laughs> um, so, I mean, is, is it normal for, like, you kind of think that you've got it, right? It's normal, it's normal for, for humans to think, well, I, I think I'm doing a pretty good job of this. Maybe those other people aren't, but, yeah. right? I mean, is that, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah and, there, and in fact, there's this great, um, the great, I, I say great a lot of times when I don't mean positive, but, uh, <laughs> so there's <Big>. this, <laughs> yeah, so there's this, um, phenomenon, for instance, in psycho, in the psychological literature that's called, um, asymmetric motive attribution. And, and basically what this is, is we, we have this assumption that, um, I am motivated, for instance, that I'm, mo- that my, pos- my positions are motivated by good things like the facts or, a commitment to justice or, you know, things like this. And, but they are motivated by bad things, ignorance, irrationality, prejudice, et cetera. Um, and, and, and this is the way that all, all people think when, especially when confronted with someone who fundamentally disagrees with them about something. This is the, the, the natural impulse. This is true of conservatives. This is true of progressives. This is true of, 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 you know, Christians when they're dealing with Muslims or Muslims when they're dealing with, you know, et cetera, all across the board. It's just a, a, a all of us humans. Yeah. It's just a human, exactly. It's a fundamentally human way that we react when we're challenged with, um, someone who disagrees with us about fundamental things is to think that, of course, the source of the disagreement must be that there's something wrong with them, right? <laughs> and I mean, you hear that nearly every five minutes if you turn on the news, right? Is somebody blaming somebody else and impugning their motivation? So we've sort of weaponized that human, you know, skill set. Yeah, um, and 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 in fact, 
We were talking about this a little bit last night, but there's, there's all of this disturbing. So yeah, so, so education institutions in principle, what we would be training people to do is to, is to, is to find ways to sort of counteract this natural impulse. But in some ways, we actually kind of reinforce, so, so for instance, one way in which we, we reinforce this kind of impulse that is, is we focus so much in institutions on cultivating students' critical capacities. So we teach, we teach them how to deconstruct and, and criticize and find what's wrong with what people are saying. But we, we don't really do much to, to, to cultivate students' affirmative capacities, right? So, so to ask them, um, what's right about your opponent's position or what works about the prevailing order or, you know, et cetera. And actually the, the ironic thing about not, not refining people's affirmative capacities is in many respects it undermines our ability to actually create social change. So most of us, we go into, into this work not because we just want to like understand social problems in some abstract way, but because we actually want to sort of move the meter on things we care about. And in order to do that, uh, one thing that we need to be able to do is understand, so if we want to create change, we have to first understand what sort of, what the current situation is, and what works, about, what's right about the current situation, as well, about the status quo, as well as what's wrong with it. Because otherwise, if we just take a sort of burn it all down approach, um, we can get rid of some things that are actually pretty important and that work, and people can end up in, in a worse situation than we started. And we see this all the time with well-intentioned efforts that people try to do that either don't achieve their stated goal or even kind of blow, you know, go the opposite way. And one way that you can help prevent that is by also, is, is by looking at what's working and, and functioning and why. Yeah, so I had written actually down to that point that you had written that, you know, in the aftermath of a tragedy or atrocity or something that, that is morally repugnant to us, that it seems like the most reasonable and sympathetic response is to double down on group identity and to recommit to protect the most vulnerable populations. However, this will not succeed. Yeah, and part of the reason, again, why, to the extent that in the in the aftermath of some kind of injustice or something that we see is is wrong, that our impulse is to become more rigid or more militant against people who who seem to hold fundamentally different positions than us. Basically, what, what, what ends up happening in the, if, if we give into that impulse is that we end up polarizing further. And we end up, um, so if the problem is that these people are fundamentally wrong about something or, the, or they're causing me harm or something like this, if my response is, is to attack them or to sort of double down on where I, so for instance, one thing I always highlight for people is if you want to change someone's mind about something, rather than, I mean, the first thing you, that you should do is try to establish some sort of common ground with them. And the last thing that you should try to do is impugn, is, what you want to do is sort of lower the, lower the threshold of agreement. So if, if what it takes for them to come around to seeing your way of the, to come around roughly to your position is for them to admit that they're somehow morally depraved or evil or something like that, they're just not going to get there. You're never going to get them there. They're not going to say, okay, you're right, you're right, I am. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You're right, I'm crazy, I'm stupid, I'm evil. Like, no one no one is and, ever going to... And yet that's kind of what we're doing in the public square almost all the time, right? Oh, yes, uh, frequently. And, and we, not only are they not going to, you know, see things your way when you start start there, but they're actually probably going to move further in the other direction. 
But obviously, I mean, this is something that you, if you're very passionate about something, it's a very human thing to do. No, again, it's it's perfectly human. I mean, this yeah. is one of the this is one of the things. Is, is this is one of the struggles? Is that it's not that um, the people who are responding this way are responding in some kind of you know deviant manner. They're they're responding in the normal manner. In some ways, what we're what John uh, Height often talks about how what we're trying to do in academia and and more broadly in some senses what we're trying to do with liberal democracy is something that does in some important senses kind of push up against our natural impulses it's it's almost a superhuman project in some ways mm-hmm. and in order for it to work it requires sort of very specific conditions it requires a commitment to it requires certain institutions and a commitment to really keeping those institutions healthy and a commitment to keeping the broader civic culture and the civic glue that kind of allows these institutions to work to really keeping that strong because it breaks down um, very easy and naturally and naturally and, naturally. and, and as it does in democracy we were talking about how in some ways this sort of has the same sort of the, the boundaries of this conversation are similar to what they are about just democracy in general and the, the idea that we're sort of set up to check each other and the checks and balances and the different branches of government that in theory work that way too. Absolutely. Right. I mean, this was, yeah, this was the, the sort of central insight to our, of our forefathers when they were designing this, uh, when they were designing a lot of the systems and institutions good, that we good. Had. John says they're good more. They were good moral psychologists. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Is, they had a good intuitive uh, yeah. understanding of a lot. So one of the things I was checking my time because I, I I get have these flow moments. I'm really really bad at time, so I'm trying to make sure that we get you out on time, and it's not like. 1 a.m. and we're talking here. Um, so I would like to bring up Dr. Sam Staley, a true Renaissance man, and I really do mean it when it comes to Sam. And, and I think he's one of the most fascinating people who lives in our city. Dr. Sam Staley is the director of the DeVoe L. Moore Center, a senior research fellow at Reason Foundation and professor at FSU where he teaches urban planning regulation and urban economics. He's the author of 11 fiction and nonfiction books. He does not sleep, apparently. He writes um, under the pen name of S.R. Staley when writing fiction. He's also published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and his list is really long, just like Moose's is. His most recent books are Calusa Spirits. Is that how you say it? Yeah, my most recent novel. Um, Pirate and Panther Bay series and Unsafe on Any Campus, College Sexual Assault and What We Can Do About It. So you see, he's a, he's a very interesting guy. Welcome, Sam. Thank you. Great to be here. So, so you advise a number of conservative groups on campus here at FSU. And so tell us more about the conversation that Musa and I have been having from the perspective of conservative students on campus. Wow. Where to start? It's been an interesting journey, to say the least. I think it's also important to understand where I came from when I came to FSU, which is in 2011. I was coming out of the think tank world, the private think tank world, 25 years working in public policy and policy change. So I did not come out of an academic world itself. And so, but I had been spent enough time in academics and in universities. I understood the culture that I was getting into. And I really thought that I was going to be coming in and trying to give support and also some encouragement to conservative groups on campus. Because I've been hearing a lot of this stuff about how conservative voices have been, have been constrained and all these students really felt that they were just not being heard. And I was going to come on campus and 
I was going to get on my my horse and I was going to ride down and we were going to figure out how to do it. Well, when I when I came on campus, I found out that our college Republicans was the second largest chapter in the nation. And I found out as we started doing some of our work, and I, the Devoe Moore Center is a free market think tank, so it's uh, it is not it is identified as being conservative. I, I just say it's free market, but and we look at state and local issues. And as I started looking at the campus, what I realized is that on FSU campus, we we found about twenty three student organizations. These are that have been started up spontaneously. That really where there were 700 students that self-identified as being center-right. In other words, not center-left, and really not center. And then if you just do a little bit of math and understanding these campus cultures, you really were talking about a small liberal arts college of people, of students that identify and have already self-identified. That's the first thing that told me that FSU is different, um, that there's something going on here that's very different that I thought was very interesting. My role has been really to facilitate and enable and try to help them make sure their voice is heard, but also work with them on programming. And I've got a very student-centered approach to what I do on campus. But there is very clearly the, clear the sense that they are under siege, ideologically, both in the classroom, uh, to less extent at FSU campus, which is interesting. And so a lot of what we've been trying to do is really think about trying to broaden the dialogue. In other words, let's not think of ourselves as being in a camp of just Republicans, but also think about how we actually engage. And it's been interesting to see that because I found the conservatives have been very willing to engage uh, across partisan lines. They've had more trouble getting the left to actually engage with them. And so it's, one, it's been an interesting dynamic through yeah. that. I mean, we've seen this at Heterodox Academy as well, um, that in some respects it's, it's easier to convince, well, actually it's, it's not, it's not, to, to me it's not surprising in that to the extent that you, you feel like your own position is, is gonna be somehow threatened or undermined if you can, if you cede any ground to someone who you think of as your opposition or something like that, then if you're the, 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 the group that seems to have the majority of the, of the power, then it can be hard to kind of like, you feel like you're losing something or you're relinquishing power or you're putting yourself in a more vulnerable position if you try to create space for these people who you think of as as your enemy or your your rival. So, I mean, part of the problem, I think, is that mentality, right, okay. of, like, thinking of, of people who think differently. Well, I think, you know, there are, so there are a number of things that are going on on campus that I think, in terms of trends, it's important to understand why these issues triangulate the way they do. One is that, particularly, and I see this now, it's very clear because I've been through the constitution of these organizations, I understand how they're set up much more so than I did at the beginning. But say, take the college Republicans, college Democrats are in the same boat. They're actually an organ of the Republican Party. Their chapter, so it's not an independent organization. They lose their charter if they would deviate from the party line. Same thing's true with the college Democrats. Same thing's true with the college libertarians in the sense that they're students for liberty and there's a whole, there's a libertarian group, that type of thing. So what I find the students, it's interesting, is they're often feel that they're boxed in to support something that they don't necessarily agree. Many of them are also coming out of a high school experience where these issues have been polarized to begin with, and they're very partisan. So they bring that in as freshmen and sophomores. And then the question is, do our campuses provide the kind of environment where they can begin to think more critically 
sort of think outside the box, begin to understand the humanity of the other side. You know, that's a really important thing, one of my important themes. What I find is our students are more than willing to do this. And yeah. I really, sorry, I, I, I just really like the point, that I, I really like that you mentioned that students are coming to college from high school often with a lot of these mindsets. This has one of, been one of our evolutions at Heterodox Academy too. Initially, our sort of working hypothesis in the beginning as it related to a lot of these student dysfunction things was that campuses were were like producing the, a lot of these problems. Like there was something about the way students were being educated that was sort of making them more hostile towards each other, or making them less likely to um, work uh, or just to see the value in the other side. And uh, instead, what we've found as we've been studying the issue more is that, well, what we found is that is exactly what you said, that a lot of times they're actually coming to campuses already with this, these very strong uh, priors. And uh, the problem is that institutions of higher learning are not really correcting them, and in some senses they are. Or perhaps are their parents? Exactly. Right? I mean, I'm sort of thinking, where where did they learn that? I think... From everything they see. Yeah, I think Moose is bringing up a really, really important point. It's also a very subtle point. So I don't... What I've found at any time in this conservatives... I've been around conservatives most of my life, even though I self-identify as a libertarian. At the end of the day, I'm a human that has his own worldview. We just categorize in order to make it easier to sort of navigate this in a public space. But what I find is that that if you guys think I'm indoctrinating your kids, that's not happening. Our, I mean, our students are finding their own way. And they are struggling, and they are pushing, and they are pulling. And, they, and what's interesting about FSU is that it has created this environment to allow that to happen in a way that I'm not sure happens a lot of other universities because of the way the administration taking the lead of Stan Marshall um, was really important. That's part of our culture. But what happens is they end up self-selecting into ideological corners that are reinforced by faculty in their research. And then they end up developing a harder line, which makes these conversations harder to have. So that is a great segue to a question I've got. So there was a piece in the New York Times by um, Marin Kogan, How Liberal Colleges Breed Conservative Firebrands. She used Stephen Miller as an example and basically said that life on the defensive can foster a kind of ideological contrarianism that can curdle into reactionary politics. Is that, is that I mean, obviously you don't see, you see them in college, but yeah. what, what do you, what's your gut on that and, and yours, Musa? Well, my view is that definitely happens. I, I, I see that, and I also reflect on my undergraduate experience with Commando was a while ago, but it actually was at a, a particularly polarizing time in the early 80s. And you do get this sense where if you're in the minority, and I've also seen this in politics too. Um, so what I tried to do is I learned very early working in state and local politics that trying to categorize an elected official as a DNR or an R didn't make any sense. What I needed to do was find out what that elected official was really trying to accomplish. What were their values? And how was my policy work going to try and triangulate into that? And But what we find is that when you're in a minority, it's easy to rage against the machine. Uh, or the man, whatever that might be. We're in the majority, it's easy to try and fall into this. I want to keep that. And so this hardens lines even more. But, and so you will create, if you're in a very liberal environment, you're going to create, and, and there's not a lot of breathing room for the minority. 
you're going to find that these firebrands are going to come out of it, and they'll be sustained in various ways. I think it goes the other way, too. I think if we were going at Liberty University, for example, very conservative uh-huh. university. Very center. I, I've, I've talked to students that are much more liberal than Liberty University or Hillsdale College or any number of more conservative campuses, the same thing. And so what worries me is can we actually change our frame to allow the kind of intellectual diversity. Like, I'm, I'm convinced that what Musa said earlier is that, and I tell my students, and actually in a different context, just, I can, I know where I am as a free market libertarian because I understand Marx and I understand democratic socialism and I treat them with respect. And so that kind of ability to engage in ideas allows you to form your own views in ways that allow you to really navigate this world much more effectively. So I'm not going to give up my principles, but at the same time, I begin to understand where other people are coming from. And, oh, no, yeah, no. jump in. Well, yeah, so so there's this style of um, argumentation or discussion today that is sort of growing more popular, which is something like you begin a conversation with, like, as a whatever, and then you go, like, you know, as a black Muslim or as a Democrat or something... Um, and then you kind of proceed from there. And the, the intention behind that is that it's supposed to help signal your positionality to show, to, 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 so that other people can understand sort of, in principle, you would think that it would help people understand your biases and maybe the limitations of your experience and whatever so that you can, so that they can see also sort of what, what they can bring to the conversation perspectives that you, that you might not have. And so in principle, one would think that it would actually be good for helping people understand their differences, and and it and it and it is. But the problem is we kind of get the priority mixed up, right? So um, we kind of get the order mixed up. Uh, so focusing on differences is good. There's actually all sorts of research that shows that for teams that um, sort of, for instance, focus on 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 differences in background and things like that. They're actually better at, at solving problems than teams that try to ignore those differences. But key to this is that, that, that effectiveness happens within organizations when people already have a shared goal, right? So they're, so they're, they're more effective at, so once you have some kind of superordinate identity or superordinate goal, then you can drill into the differences and, and really leverage them in a way that's productive, because you trust each other, because you, you, you don't think that they're trying to destroy you, etc. Um, so, so have you guys seen the Heineken ad, Worlds Apart? I want you to go home and look it up, because it has some of the most con- uh, the two most important conditions for sort of bridging division, which is contact hypothesis, you know, positive contact with people you disagree with, superordinate goal. Yeah. Superordinate goal. In, in the ad, they basically are, are building a bar. So a superordinate goal like building a bar can do it. So I have one more um, question I want to pose specifically to you, Sam, before I bring Shane up and we we have the whole conversation. So why, and I would punctuate it by, oh, why, why do conservative students bring provocateurs to campus? Yeah. Why? And And then maybe the other side of that is, do they notice it didn't necessarily work? What, what have you seen? <laughs> yeah, so um, I'm not sure if many people in the audience remember when college Republicans brought Milo Yiannopoulos, who is a, uh, um, is a provocateur. 
Which should um, be contrasted. Your story is going to be contrasted with, with what happened at Berkeley when Milo right, came. Right, right. So Milo, it's interesting. So uh, I'm not going to go into the whole story. We just don't have the time. But essentially, I became involved because I had to solve an administrative and logistical problem. And uh, and just for the record, Milo is not the guy that I would bring onto campus at any. You know, but but the college Republicans wanted to bring him on. So the question is why? It's very clear, actually. And actually, if we understand human psychology and social psychology, it makes it very clear. College Republicans didn't think they had a voice. They didn't think that they were being respected as a, as an ideological or a dogmatic or whatever of their value system. My, they, it's not that they agreed with Milo. Actually, it was that Milo was going to bring their voice into a discussion that they thought they had been marginalized in. So that's, at the end of the day, that's it. And he was not brought in to convert anyone. He was not brought in to really start a dialogue. It was about creating voice. But, and does it? Like, did they feel satisfied in that particular case that they had achieved what they wanted? Because I guess my theory is you sort of push it out to a reaction and a a counter-reaction and and give it some sort of circularity. And it it feels like it's one of the things that is really... So let's also, there, there are two elements of Florida State campus and Florida State campuses generally that I think are important for us actually answering your question. One is recognizing that the majority of our students have probably spent at the most two years on campus and then they graduate out. That's because we have TCC, it's a feeder school, a lot of students transfer in. The other is that actually, if you're actually on the four-year plan, which we're getting more on, you cycle out. So the narrow question is, did it, did it accomplish what they want? Yeah, I think if you talk to anybody in the College of Republicans, it accomplished what they want. Why? Because they got noticed. Did it achieve anything beyond that, in my view? No, it didn't. But they're just here for a little while, and they got noticed. So, and, and that's yeah. what they wanted. Well, and I think uh, one, one thing that we see, too, um, both in the national sort of broader civic trend and then um, that's reflected in a lot of the polling and stuff, is this uh, what's called negative partisanship. So so as you said, it's not about so much that they agreed with Milo. Part of it is that they just want to, in the parlance of a lot of the sort of right-leaning groups, just kind of trigger the libs, right? Yep. Like they just wanted to... Um, and they got the reaction, as, as, you, as you noted, that they were looking for. And I think, too... I mean, one thing that I've heard from some, some from some conservative students, especially as it relates to, for instance, inviting someone like Richard Spencer to campus, is like one of the, the frustrations that conservative students have expressed at times is if you try to invite someone like Paul Wolfowitz or Condoleezza Rice or you know just sort of your boilerplate Republican to your campus, a lot of times they're they're sort of greeted with accusations of being a Nazi, right? They'll protest someone like George W. Bush as a Nazi, a Nazi, right? And so uh, you know. The, some conservatives are like, oh yeah? Well, then I'll just invite a real Nazi to campus and see how you like it, right? <laughs> and I think that, that that seems to be um, at least part of the dynamic yeah. as well, right? There, there is that. But in the area of, in Milo's case, and I think if Ann Coulter would be in this. By the way, Charles Murray, I don't think I would put in this. Charles Murray, I think, is a, is a legitimate thought leader in conservative circles. And he's done some really important work, although it's been kind of overshadowed by some recent things. But actually, what I think they are really... It, Milo, so th- this is political theater. Milo Yiannopoulos and Ann Coulter, and there are those on the left, too. It's political theater. And part of what they find, and this is why it, it sort of makes it, ramps it up even more, is they'll see liberal campuses bring very left-wing people on and treat them as being legitimate. And they will try to bring anybody on who's sort of center-right, and it's considered ideological. It's considered dogmatic. And so exactly this. 
you want to bring the Condoleezza Rice on, and they're already pigeonholed, and there's enough discussion in, among students and elsewhere that it already gets marginalized or even start. And that's a big that's a big issue, and that's a legitimate issue. I think we had better discussion on campus where we could bring legitimate intellectuals on board, and then we had all sides agreeing to that. We'd have less of the political theater. That really doesn't move the discussion forward. Um, so let me make our final introduction. Uh, Shane Whittington teaches social justice at FSU Center for Leadership and Social Change. He mentors activists, and and this is how Shane was introduced to me by someone who I um, know and love and trust. He said that he perpetually surprises with his highly elusive brand of cultural commentary. So no pressure, Shane. Um, (laughs) Perpetually surprise us. Uh, And he is very kind. He's almost impossible to offend. We'll probably probably test you on that too, Shane. Um, (laughs) Passionate and curious with a dependable sense of humor. Shane, thank you for being with us. So, so what are we what are we missing so far in this conversation in terms of understanding um, what this this experience is like for students on campus who are in historically marginalized groups? Thank you, thank you, and thank you to everyone that's here, and uh, welcome if you haven't been to FSU before. Can I ask the audience a question really quick, really quickly? Yeah. I'd just like to offer you all the opportunity after eating a meal and listening to these great people. If you'd like to take a moment, this is your time to stand. I'm serious. If you'd like to stand and just shake it off. Thank you. You just had a meal. Thank you. Have a seat. Have a seat. Appreciate you. You've been sitting for a while. I mean, hey, Um, we're all human beings. We want to talk about humanity. That is a very human thing. So to add to this, um, what have we not been talking about in this yeah, like um, conversation? Yeah, what have we missed? And, and give, it, give us a sense of how it feels on campus. You know, especially especially in times like this, they're historically angry. What, what is the experience of students on campus who are in groups that feel under attack and marginalized? Okay. Well, one of the things I, I would say is, is missing from this conversation is maybe the, the words love and power, grace and forgiveness, messy, mistake-making, um, criminalization, counseling, care. I would say those are just words that have not been mentioned that I would perpetually always talk about and give way to. The students that I interact on campus, uh, interact with on campus, are very, very aware and they're very, very intuitive about what is happening um, everywhere. So I would say a lot of the tension that is happening on campuses are those things that are happening in the world. Um, so a lot of people <laughs> consider higher education, and I agree, as this bubble, right? This bubble of falsehoods. And I have once called higher education like Narnia. Have you seen the movie where it's, you know, you're just in this make-believe place, um, uh, very Mr. Rogers type of, it's just, it's, uh, it seems like it's a false, a falsehood, but it's really not. A lot of those students are bringing in lived experiences that are real. A lot of those students have experienced a lot of things that people who are in their adulthood have experienced as well. 
You, you once were not where you are now. Okay. All right. So you once were, right? Oftentimes older folk somewhat talk down or dismissive towards young people, right? But you once were young, right? Some of them are um, having a lot of conversations for the first time. So higher education offers us the opportunity to have controversial conversation, enlightening conversation, and conversation that really challenges you to have the courage and the conviction to speak about something that maybe you've never talked about before or things that you have talked about before. But now let's think about it differently. Let's think about it with depth and breath. OK, so I, I would say that a lot of the conversations that that students that I interact with have are not embarrassed to speak on. They are not shy to bring truth to power. Now, when they get in, <laughs> when they get in those rooms or when they sit at those tables, do they have a thorough plan? No. Are they ready to have a conversation? Absolutely. Do we have a thorough plan? No. <laughs> exactly. So judging them, you know, is subjective and it somewhat is not always the right thing to do. So if you are, if we are as adults open to have a dialogue and have conversation, then let's do it. I, I would also say another thing that a few more words that haven't been brought to brought up yet is the difference between debate, discussion and dialogue. Right. So debate is basically um, the fact that there is a right or wrong answer. Discussion is voicing your lived experience. What have you been going through? Dialogue is being open to more than one side, more than two sides. What is the most multiplicities of experiences that are happening to you in this room, in our community, in our nation, in the world? So it's a bit more complex. And it's where we should be leading when we are having controversial and challenging and tough conversations. Sam, you yeah. want to throw in? <laughs> actually, I have a que- uh, actually a, a question for Shane, but as in reaction because so my experience has been one of the things that I think is one of the real challenges on campuses is that given where students are when they're coming in and sort of their background, and also recognizing what's happening for their home that, with these ideological roles that they may have been. They may have felt that they've been indoctrinated in growing up, but want to break out from when they're coming on. But the question of, are we modeling properly the difference between dialogue, discussion, and debate? And what I find is that a lot of our students are, at least I've found that, they want those discussions, but they're not sure how to do it. And is that something that you've experienced? Because you're in a different part of campus than I am. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say I am a, in a in a location on campus that is on the kind of outer brim, but we have infiltrated the community. So actually, we, say, say a word about the center for people uh, okay. who aren't familiar with it. It's a it's a very unique place. Uh, the Center for Leadership and Social Change is a dynamic department and office on campus that has people from all different types of experiences. Uh, we address leadership. We, we address multiculturalism. We address uh, social justice and social change. We address scholarship. So we, we address as many things as we can. Uh, if we're not addressing it, bring it up because we want to talk about it. <laughs> right. So we are seen as an outlet on campus for dialogue. And we are also seen as a place that can be comfortable to a lot of 
can I, students. Can I just yeah. chime in on that, actually? Yeah. So I, I sat in on one of Shane's classes today, and I was just remarking to Liz, and I mentioned to you, so I'll just mention to everyone, because I think it's... One thing that was striking sitting in on Shane's class today is just how comfortable the students did feel voicing opinions that in, in a lot of other circumstances that I've been at at Columbia and other schools that they wouldn't have uh, been comfortable saying, saying things like that. And I think a, a key component of it is that the students in your class um, seem to really trust each other and seem to trust you um, such that they felt like they could say those things without getting retaliation or without being judged, or, and that people would engage with them in good faith with whatever they were putting on the table. And that's a unique environment that's not everywhere. So I just wanted to congratulate you on that, but then also to um, ask for some insights that you might have about how to foster this kind of... Because this is the thing, is it's, the students are ready for it. I think, I think you're right that the students want it and they crave it, but the conditions have to be right for them to really sort of act on that impulse, right? Yeah, thank you for that, and thank you for coming to the class today, because you, you added some complexity to the dialogue. But one of the things is that the center cultivates and that I personally and professionally carry out is, number one, disarming the conversation. So the first thing, one of the first things we do is we talk about who we are and what are our identities. So one thing I would say is I am Shane Whittington. I identify as a black man cisgender, use he, him, him, he, him, his pronouns. I've been growing my hair for 16 years. I once had braces. I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana, was born in upstate New York. So all of these things that disarm um, the conversation are identifying things that people that are thinking but are, aren't necessarily always talking about. So with that being said, after we disarm the conversation, we that is a segue into building relationships, and then therefore building community. And that is something that the center carries out very well, but uh, also to to add to what you're saying, Sam, and, and, and what you felt today was, the students trust me and I trust them because we are so transparent and we create an atmosphere and we create and maintain an environment of candor um, we create and we maintain a, an environment of mistake making, correcting and recouping, of self-healing and self-care that you internalize and you understand your healing. And then you externalize that rather than you externalize it first blaming others and then thinking that you didn't do anything wrong. So it is a constant state of that. Do, do um, places like the center exist at very many other universities? No, but I wish. I mean, I don't know. I've, I've only been to... Um, yeah, I mean, we're kind I've of only been spoiled to a few. in some I would ways. Say we're, that I, I would agree with that, and I don't mean to cut you off. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that we're spoiled. I think that the the center is an institution that is siloed. I think it's appreciated and it's valued. But it is siloed. We have tentacles throughout the community because if we were spoiled, Sam would know about us. We would be in his classroom. We would be ever present supporting him as a faculty member. So we're talking about positionality here. As a faculty member, as someone who identifies as white, male, um, libertarian, if you will, all, all these different nuances of identity, right? Yes. Well, my flag, yeah. So one thing that, um, that I find, uh, striking and, and unfortunate, uh, in a lot of conversations about identity issues is there's this presumption, I think, 
in a lot of circles, that's true across the, so, so for instance, if you're talking, if we're talking about, and we talked about this a little earlier today actually, is that if we're talking about racial issues, for instance, there's this presumption that minorities are the ones who have something to add, and it's the duty of white students to just kind of listen. Um, and, and listening is important, and, and it needs to be done, especially for people, especially when you're talking about, with respect to, to populations that haven't had a voice in the mainstream. But at the same time, for the, Really, it has to go both ways, and, and white people have important things to contribute for understanding race and discussions about race and inequality in America. And um, similarly, men have th- important things to, to talk about with regards to gender, and heterosexual people have things to, like important things to contribute to discussions about sexuality. And to the extent that we're only, that well, it's not that, that, that we're only, but that the expectation, um, I think sometimes we, the conversations aren't dynamic enough around a lot of these issues. They're kind of either, either it's like, you know, minority groups that are being, um, a lot of times minority groups are kind of silenced or talked over by whichever group is dominant if they have enough power to do that. Or on the flip side, there's a temptation for people who want to be allies or want to be supportive to kind of step back too far, right? And uh, where, where you miss the kind of interchange that's important and it's where the sort of magic happens for a lot of so- well, I want to bring this back to a little bit of reality on campus at this point. Cause actually, I want to say, I mean, I agree with everything Shane just said about teaching and pedagogy. And the Center for Leadership and Social Change is an absolute amazing place. I've had lots of students who have, they've, they've educated me on it. But here's what's interesting. And this is why I think we're having problems in, in other campuses as well. Most faculty, particularly at a research one university, don't teach this way. I'm in the College of Social Sciences. It's sage on the stage. I've got colleagues who are teaching 500 students, 300 students, 200 students. Until we begin thinking differently about how we teach, this kind of modeling, this kind of bringing people into safe space is really challenging. All my classes are flipped. But I also realize I'm very privileged to flip. Flipping means that there's the, the content is student-driven and that I have gotten off the pedestal and I'm working with them. I serve more as a coach and a mentor in the classroom than I do as an expert who's going to guide them on the path to nirvana or wherever it might be. And uh, But I'm very privileged in the College of Social Sciences to be able to do that because I teach electives. Nobody really cares what I teach because I focus on undergraduates. And my classes are small enough I can do it. Very hard to do it when we try to scale that. So the interesting thing is, because if we're talking about solutions, how do we get this? Part of this is changing the way we think about how we teach and what the role of the faculty are in being actively engaged in these kinds of conversations. So I want to jump in, Sam, because I want to queue up. Um, We've got some wonderful students in the room, some of Shane's students. We've also got uh, students from the power of we, give give a wave, and from Agree to Disagree, both two very unique um, organizations on campus. So I, I want to kind of go to them, but I want to, I want to first ask you guys um, this question. So if we can get the mics out in the audience. And also I should say a word about um, when we're doing Q&A, uh, there should be some um, question sheets in the table. You can write uh, your question or we'll have mics out in the audience too. So, um, so here, here's my question. You actually, Shane, you, you mentioned a term that I had actually never heard before. I was familiar with the concept of the call-out culture. 
and I've got a daughter in school, and, and it's something that she's very aware of um, at UNC Chapel Hill. But, but you said something, that there's something called cancel culture. Say what that is, and then I, then I want to ask the students if that's something that, that they feel, and then also just to, to comment on their experience and what, what we're missing from their experience as students. Uh, yeah, thank you. So cancel culture is this term. Can I get a raise of hands? Who knows what cancel culture is? Okay, gotcha. Thank you. Uh, if you could survey the so room. You're, you're teaching a lot of people <laughs> over 30 what this gotcha. is now. Cancel culture. All right. So uh, let me let me read from. I actually had to write this down. So it is a public denouncement. This is my own definition. (laughs) It is a public denouncement of a person and or product. So institution wide that negatively and directly harms others. So they are then canceled. Which means we don't financially, digitally, or morally support this person and or institution. Again? (laughs) So, so, yeah, so that is canceled. Exile. Canceled. You're you're basically ostracized, canceled, you're done with. Yeah, the point Um, is to destroy them. To to absolutely destroy them. Uh, If you're a public figure, uh, we want to find where you work and get you fired. Um, if you're a business or institution, we don't want to buy your clothing or product anymore because you are negatively harming others in a very direct way. So this was news to me, um, news enough that I said somebody was cancel cultured and Shane kind of went, no, you they were canceled. canceled. <laughs> canceled. Um, but I want to, um, Issa, Power of We folks, you guys actually had a forum on this just like last week or something, or you're about to? Oh, it's coming up, Yeah. So this is ESA with Power of We, which is a really incredible organization here on campus that, frankly, we've learned a thing or two from them about how to gather people. Yes, good evening, everyone. My name is Issa. About cancel culture, I guess that's where we're going. Yeah, or just any kind of comment you have, too, just uh, on our conversation so far. What are we missing? I think the biggest thing, uh, Shane, you mentioned the word mistake. And I think that's so important to talk about because adults tell us all the time, you know, Making mistakes is good. Making mistakes is, this is the time to make mistakes. You grow from mistakes. You grow from failure. And I think the biggest thing, especially on social media for us, is that at least my generation, there is very little room for mistakes on social media. People will go through your feed. Not, I don't know if me personally, I don't think anyone's gone through my feed, but celebrities or someone that says something incorrect and they will go through and find something from seven years ago. It's just something I think about a lot because morally, are we, how are we judging people? Are we leaving room for growth? And the same can be said within the classroom, you know. I've been in classrooms where, where someone says something maybe politically incorrect and I hear the murmur. I hear the, you know. And my worry is, Everyone comes from a different background. Everyone doesn't know maybe the same things you might know and might say something incorrect, but I try to look at things, you know, what are they trying to say? Like, what is their motive? What is their intentionality? Yeah, what, what are they trying to say? You know, what is the main idea? Don't, not to get stuck on the words, but kind of the meaning. That's kind of my, my two cents. Just trying to figure out how to support each other as students and how to, how to grow as a community going beyond just words but meaning and and 
As soon as people sit down and talk to each other face-to-face, everything changes. That's another thing about social media. It's so different when people sit down face-to-face. And I've seen it in students. You know, we do the longest table at FSU, which is like Village Square, and Leon County created it. But having it with students is so important. You know, we fight on social media, but if we sit down face-to-face, everything changes. So, yeah, mistakes and talking face-to-face and growth. Those are my two cents. (laughs) Power of We was a finalist for a heterodox award um, last year, and they they really are incredibly unique in the country in terms of what they're doing. Thank you. How about Eliza? You you want to say a word? Eliza, you you guys just did a program with Dr. Staley uh, just last week with author Greg Horwitz in town. Yeah, so we did Agree to Disagree. That was our fourth Agree to Disagree, and we brought in a New York Times bestselling author, Greg Hurwitz, who has worked with Democrats on the Hill to facilitate bipartisan discussion. To talk a little bit about cancel culture, I've actually been engaged in some of these conversations online where I've been the recipient of, you know, I, I sort of got burned during the 2016 election. There's a reason I really don't talk about politics anymore to people that I don't know. I'm, I wouldn't consider myself very partisan, but, you know, I perhaps shared some of my more conservative views, uh, and then I was, I don't think we said cancel culture back then. I think it was a little early for that, but, um, but I definitely was disparaged quite a bit. And then I decided, mm, I'm not interested in being labeled, you know, a Nazi or horrible person or trash or any of those words anymore. But as much as it goes for me, and I'm not well known, I'm just a student at FSU, you know, many people out there, they have their lives ruined because someone disagrees with what they say. And I'm not talking about the Milo Yiannopoulos of the world. I'm talking about just general people going about their business that happen to share an opinion and then get slandered on social media. And you don't recover from that. You know, you log on and it's, it's everywhere. And, and for those of you who don't have social media, you might not understand the significance of it, but, but to younger people, I, I would not begin to downplay it at all. It's, it's everything. It's how we communicate. Yeah. If, I mean, if you could, if you could make something happen, I'm, I want to ask Eliza a follow-up question real quick. Imagine what you would like to see, like, is, is there a, a, a attainable shift in this? From a student perspective, like like imagine if there, if if things were different. I mean, I don't know. I just want to hear a little bit more from you about, um, and and maybe say a word about. You know, Sam was talking about about how what you guys did last week with Greg Horitz in town, and and I came and spoke with your group is sort of what what you're trying to build to in terms of the environment. Yeah, absolutely. So there are a couple of things that I want to touch on with that. Issa was mentioning that it's so much easier to have a face-to-face conversation with people than over social media. Uh, You're not going to tell someone to their face, or you'd be much less inclined to tell someone to their face that they are a horrible human being than you would be online. What we do with Agree to Disagree, though, and this is to your point, one of the primary things that we do is talk about our backgrounds, not only what we believe, but why we believe what we believe. So, um, you know, where we were raised, you know, what our religion is. Do we come from a two-parent household or a one-parent household? What area of the country are we from? And so doing these things begins to disarm 
students, like you were mentioning before, it begins to disarm students. And then, you know, once you get into the heavier portions of the conversation, starting to talk about your differences, it becomes much more difficult when you find out that you have things in common to put someone in a box or label them. And so, you know, going forward, I think that I would much rather see our uh, student population start to look at each other as, as human beings and not so much... I, I don't like it when people put each other in boxes. You know, we're, we're human. So if you could um, maybe walk over to the to Shane's cheering section. There are a, uh, <laughs> a group that I lead on campus called Social Change Peer Educators, and they go out to uh, faculty, staff, students, and talk about difficult conversations. It could be about identity. It could be about leadership. It could be about something super specific. Um, someone in our group had a disagreement and we want to know how to how to negotiate and how to navigate those troubled waters. It could be about race, uh, racism. It could be about anything. It could be about why do we have the integration statue on campus? It could be anything that um, that anybody wants to manage conversation about. Um, and this group is a talented group of uh, undergraduate students. So you guys throw in. Do you have something that you want to add to the conversation? Hello. Thank you. So one thing I wanted to add is that um, cancel culture became a thing because people from marginalized identities wanted to gain some power in, like, the online discourse. It's saying that, like, there's a threshold of things that someone can say where, like, people who are, you know, disregarded can say, you know what, I will not interact with that until you show that you have improved, you have grown. Definitely there is, like, some... There's some harsh critic out there online, but cancel culture at its root is about taking back some power that marginalized people truly don't have and saying that you're canceled because I don't want to interact with that. You'll be fine because I have no power technically. But for me, as someone who has no real power in society, I have decided not to think about you and not to look at you and not to interact with you until I've seen some growth. And I think that's like the root of cancel culture. And it's about you've passed that limit and that you have not shown any like growth, any learning about certain things that I just don't want to interact with you. Lisa? Yeah. So, um, so I guess, yeah, two things. So, so the first is that that impulse is definitely well, so, so the impulse is understandable, you know, when, when you've reached the limit and you're just kind of done. Uh, and and there are and you know it's okay to be done <laughs> right the way that cancel culture can sometimes become destructive is like if it's just one person saying okay you know this is over cancel right then that's then that's one thing but if it turns out that like it, when it goes viral and it's tens of thousands of people that don't know you or this person and have no like no real stake in this like no personal stake or connection to the conversation but just want to take a moment to say you suck to this random person that they don't even know right um then then that can be harmful and and the i think the point you mentioned about how the point the the original point was to say like i don't want to engage with you right now until you've grown right so the, so the idea wasn't that this is the end forever like you're you're sort of banished to the hinterlands it's like let's let's break for for and then you you know when you're ready we, we, I've told you where I'm at. When you're ready, we can sort of try again. 
like that's a different dynamic than, and this was traditionally the point of call of, of callouts, and and I don't just mean in the internet age. I mean like broader in in society. Um, the point was to um, signal that harm had been done, and that you uh, to make clear that harm had been done, and that there was a problem that needed to be resolved, but with the intention of folding them back, right? Of, with the intention of reforming. So that you could, so that they could be folded back into the community. But, but then the virality and the scale takes over. Yeah, right? and so now with, the with some unintended consequences. Well, or, the, increasingly, it's it's not reformative; it's retributive, right? So now the goal is is is, is not so much. Uh, well, not always, but a lot of times, the goal is not so much to help this to to sort of make clear what was wrong in order to fold to change their behavior and fold them back the goal sometimes is and sometimes explicitly is to destroy them i'm going to get you fired from so so this, so it's a different situation for instance when you're like i don't really have any power and so i'm stepping back versus like starting a campaign to literally get someone fired from your job right that's about exerting power and that's about destroying another person and no 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 let's talk about the the larger context of cancel culture Minoritized people are canceled. You're constantly navigating this world canceled. Yeah. Okay, let me be clear. And, and in this so, environment, you're, you're hearing that a lot from places that you're not used to hearing them. Uh, we're, we're, I, I would say that we're not necessarily hearing it because it's ever-present. It is something that is subtle, but very true and very obvious and very... Uh, so you have a marked identity. That marked identity of you being a person of color in particular, just specifically for that example, is stamped, right? You can't remove that. You are canceled. So we talk about these institutions of power, right, that they have to, and I'm going to use your words, have to work themselves back into the fold. Minoritized people are always constantly working themselves back into the fold, okay? All uh, Constantly. It is a thing. It is what we have to do. So if, if you don't think it's real, I'm here to tell you it's real, boo-boo. All right. It's absolutely real. And uh, and uh, outside of that, uh, what I'd like to add to this is that the other side of this and what you're saying is, is there is another side of it where there is an opportunity. Right. Uh, and that is out cancel culture. And then what may be the flip side of the coin, I'm just going to offer this, maybe restorative culture. OK. Redemptive culture. Right. So what do those steps look like? So I can tell you now. Minoritized people are always constantly working for redemption, always trying to work for restoration, right? So they can be humanized. Uh, we live in this this world, and I, I don't even want to bring it up. All right, you get me you get me into a lather. <laughs> all right? But um, we live in this world that is uh, constant, where you're constantly barraged with images, words. And constantly in an environment of perpetual cancel. Being on this, this campus, this institution, Florida State University, and I, I apologize to anybody who may be offended, but this, this institution is a very white institution that if you are not white, you are constantly fighting for being uncanceled in the classroom academically. You're, you're seen as someone who didn't work hard enough to be here. You're, you're marked by, if you're a black male on campus, as instantly being an athlete. You didn't earn it academically, you're just here, right? If you're a, a black woman in class, you are attacked in a lot of ways of just signifying with your hair. Are you kidding me? 
Right. So uh, it, it is all it, it. So cancel culture. There is a larger thing happening where those people who have been minoritized by their marked identities are now making a stand to try to bring truth to power through a medium that everyone can access. Well, but but so, so yeah. my my concern though sometimes is that so so that like um, and it's all the difference really between the the restorative approach and, and uh, the retributive approach if we're going to stick with this framework. Is like my concern sometimes is that we end up reproducing some of the very dynamics that we're trying to challenge or criticize. So, for instance, there was this, as, as, you, as you all, as some people might remember, I'll just use a broader example. Um, there was a, 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 a group of militiamen led by this man, Amon Bundy, who took over a wildlife refuge in, in Oregon some time ago. And um, a lot of people in the media were noting that if it had been a group of like blacks or Muslims, for instance, who had armed themselves and took over a federal building to make a, a political point, they would have already been dead, right? And, uh, and there's, that's true, but people took the wrong lesson from it. What they were calling for a lot of times when they were pointing out this observation was for the FBI to go in there and treat them just like they would a black or a Muslim. Go in there, kill those suckers, you know. And, and that's the wrong takeaway. If, if how they're treating blacks and Muslims is wrong, right, then the lesson we should be taking from that is that we need to treat people of color with the same charity, with the same benefit of doubt, with the same forbearance that we're granting to these people. And it's right to grant that forbearance to these people. And, and, and I feel like... In a lot of cases, we do this uh, where, where, you know, we've been wronged and when we have the chance to put the shoe on the other f- foot to show them how it feels to be a minority, right? We, we, we take that opportunity. We let them know how it feels. We rub their face, you know, uh, we exert that power when we can. But if the problem, if, if it's wrong, that we, the way that, we, you know, if the situation that we're faced with is wrong, then the tension that I feel is like that it's, the approach sh- should be to try to like, the more fundamental challenge to the system and the prevailing order would be to not to play that game, right? Not to reproduce that dynamic. And this is one of the things that I, I, I try to work through or, or, or think through a lot. So I want to go ahead and um, give people a chance to make comments, ask questions. No Does anybody have a question or a comment? We've got about 15 more minutes, so make the question and the answer is kind of shortish. Okay. Hi. You realize uh, he's up here. <laughs> Isn't dishonesty an almost insurmountable barrier to civil discourse? What do we do about it? We can't, we can't agree on facts. People accept what the president says is right and true. What do we do? Can I, so can you, the, the first part is, isn't dishonesty, is that what you said? Yes. Okay. Right. I Broadcasting actually, yeah. untruth. Right. Misinformation. Falsehoods. Yeah. I would argue, and I work in this space quite a bit, uh, certainly before I came to FSU as well. Now at FSU, it's got a different dimension because of the nature of the the campus environment. Uh, What I find, what I spend most of my time doing in that 25 years before coming here was getting people to around a table so we can understand what the facts are. People have different perceptions of facts and what the, and they bring a meaning into those facts. So I actually don't agree that, I mean, I believe that everyone uses facts to sort of build an identity and a viewpoint, but most people, when they're brought into an environment where they believe they can have an honest dialogue, are willing to even challenge the facts that they hold. If they're presented, in a, if they believe that they're going to be heard, and, and if they believe that, the key is to have them learn something differently about their understanding of what's going on, what those facts are. 
Now, there is a component, I actually deal with this in one of my classes, where some people are so dogmatic they'll never change where their position is. That rarely has to do with facts at that point. But there is, in my experience, as well on campus, as well as in my work, once the key, if you get people to agree on the facts, and you can't do it on social media, you can't do it on talking heads on Tucker and Carlson. Face whatever to face. Be. And actually, face Musa, you've got some concept about sort of what we should be teaching in probably everywhere, but let's just talk universities. So entering students get diversity training, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so, so a lot of times we have the cart sort of pulling the horse. Is that the expression? With, with regards to um, political disagreements about... So there's a lot of research that shows that when, when you present people with facts, if you start leading by, like, here's a study or a statistic, say, blah, when you're, when you're engaging with someone who's on the opposite side of you uh, on, a funda- on, a, on, a, on a deep issue, rather than serving as sort of a common ground that can um, sort of unite people together, it actually polarizes people more if you lead with lead with facts. So that can't be the leading thing, right? After you establish common ground uh, or, or something like that, after you establish some basic level of trust, after you, so there has to be a relationship first for the facts to, 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 to work, right? Then you can bring in the fact stuff. As a, as a prime example, uh, I'm taking it you're left-leaning because you, you started with Trump stuff, so I'll, I'll speak to this. So there's this great... Um, and this time I actually mean great. There's a great, there's some great research by this guy at Yale um, named Dan Cahan, who does work on cultural cognition. And one of the things that he found, for instance, is that climate change deniers, on average, tend to be much more well-versed on climate change science than people who believe in climate change. And that sounds counterintuitive at first, but then when you think about it, it kind of makes sense. And, and it speaks to this point that Liz was mentioning about the conservative firebrands, actually. So... Um, if you're someone who who just accepts the scientific consensus, then chances are you're not going to go out and read a bunch of climate change studies or something like that. It's like the scientists say it's good, so it's good, right? Um, but if you're someone who 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 is inclined to disagree with that and knows full well that other people are going to think you're stupid or crazy or psychotic or something like that for for disagreeing with the consensus, then you're you're going to tend to. Uh, read a lot more, and, and, and even to the point of finding the few exceptions, scientists, like if you find the scientists who disagree with, with, the, with the prevailing consensus, you can identify some of them and know specifically what they argue, right? Um, and so uh, a lot of times when we get in disagreements with people who, so, so a lot of times when climate change, say, acceptors get, in, get into arguments with people who are climate change skeptics, the skeptic is actually a lot more well versed in the actual science of climate, uh, in the actual climate science so, than they are. So even though Arthur Brooks of AEI says that he, because he spent so much time as a conservative on liberal campuses, that he can win any argument just because he has so much practice. Yeah, and this is true for a lot of things. So whether we're talking about um, like arguments with Holocaust denialists, flat earthers, anything like this, like if you have a position that you've never really had to think about or defend, or that you've never been challenged on in any meaningful way. And someone else who who is taking a contrary position has thought about it a lot and researched a lot and has been arguing a lot with basically everyone they know about this issue. Then they will wipe the floor with you, right? If you get in. So uh, and so in that kind of and uh, make it brief so we can get some other questions. But but that kind of touches on sort of the idea of 
you know, what if one of the things we did, and actually one of the things that Heterodox does in some of its work, is teaches human nature, teaches the way that we think and we make decisions intuitively rather than rationally, using confirmation bias, et cetera. That's one of your theses about what we need to be doing to move this needle. Yeah, so Heterodox Academy, we developed this platform called Open Mind that is intended, it's a a psychology-based program to just give you familiar, to give people quick familiarity with things like confirmation bias and motivated reasoning. And you can go online and use it, right? Yeah, and the goal is actually to fold it into a lot of uh, freshman orientations and things like that was was what we had in mind when we used it. But now a lot of nonprofits and others use it as well. But yeah, so we know from the success of uh, things like cognitive behavioral therapy that when people become aware of the ways their thinking can go awry, when they have specific names and like so they understand specific biases and things like that, they can take a step back sometimes. Sort of go, there's, there's my, you know, rationalization going. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not perfect. It's not infallible, right? You're never going to be purely objective. But we can get to a place where, um, when we're presented with something that strongly challenges our priors, that we don't always kind of like just give into that, that inst, cause that instinct is always there, right? <laughs> the, yeah. the initial reaction is like, that's just Human. us. Human. <laughs> right. So, so, Bob. Yeah, heterodox. Academy's rankings of universities. I see the University of Florida ranks sixth with a composite score of 78. Florida State's about 40th with a composite score of 48. What can FSU do to catch up? So uh, I'll say a couple of things. One thing is that we're actually fundamentally redoing the guide to colleges in part because, and and I guess we can talk about, like I don't want to waste a bunch of time with that. Uh, (laughs) But um. Some things that are sort of, that are useful, especially for the, for the forthcoming sort of, the sort of 2.0 version that we're doing. So one thing that we're going to do in this subsequent version is to measure a much broader spectrum of viewpoint diversity and what it means. Again, the current guide is focused pretty tightly on political diversity, which is important, um, but it's not the only kind of diversity that matters. And, and, and again, it's like intimately related with all of these other forms of diversity. Political diversity is in religious diversity. So I don't know if I, I, I don't know if I told you that actually, um, I nominated Florida State as an institution last year and they were in the finals for the heterodox award, um, in the, in the institutional category. University of Chicago won, but that was sort of like, yeah. Um, but but I think I think some of this well, is probably and actually what I said what John said at the time is wow I think we missed something so so I think some of this is probably you know a matter of sort of getting more familiar too with what's what's out there and how the institutions are rolling. Absolutely, this is one of the reasons why we're retooling it. Actually, is we're, we want to work on a way to have a much deeper, richer comprehensive understanding of what's happening on different campuses and to do a broader range of them as well. Right now we only focus on 200 basically, but we want to do like there are like 4,000 colleges and universities nationwide when you count community colleges and, you know, um, tech schools and stuff. Big, big job. So we want to try to get as many of them as we can. But on, on the, on, I'll, I'll just flag one thing that we've just talked about recently is that uh, one of the things that we do look at, at the, on the current iteration of the guide is whether or not universities have adopted uh, or embraced not not only the Chicago principles but something in the spirit of the Chicago principles is like as an institution being committed to yeah um, and actually you and that apparently just happened yeah uh, so yesterday president thrasher um, stood up with other college presidents and embraced the I've got a copy of it it's like three pages and 
you know, the point, uh, at, at some point it says, education should not be intended to make people comfortable, it's meant to make people think. And it goes on from there. So other, other questions and comments. I kind of wanted to dive into to that whole thing, but I'm not sure we have time. I guess, Tom, you had your, well, okay. Go ahead. <laughs> um, make, it, make it pretty brief because we're running yes. out of time. Well, I'm afraid we could go on with this one for the next 20 months. We all know that on this Thursday, Attorney General Barr will give his report on what we can see or not see of the special counsel's report after two years of investigation. My question is that to whatever, whatever the extent of redactions in this report, how might conservatives and liberals specifically and successfully get to the truth that the special counsel's full report, whenever we hear various parts of it, might help all of us find that truth collectively and in the, due the, time. The world is waiting for an answer. Well, okay. I think it could, take, <laughs> I think it could do this mind? in about the next okay. 20 months. Yeah. Yeah. Can I blow everyone's minds real quick? Okay, so we've been talking about Russiagate nonstop for like, what is it now, three years almost? Like two, two years? Okay, quick question. When was the last major confirmed case of foreign meddling in a U.S. presidential race? Anybody? No, so no, actually, and this is the point. This is the point. So this is why the work of Heterodox Academy is so important. This is a prime example of how, okay, so actually I'll give you the answer, um, real quick, and I, and I won't go into it in super depth, but a little, just enough to give you a flavor, and I wrote an article about it that you guys can check out. So, so the year was, uh, 1996, the meddler was China, and the intended beneficiary was one William Jefferson Clinton. So basically what happened is Bob Dole took a really hard line on China in the lead-up to the uh, 96 election. So China tried okay, to... Yeah, I'm not sure we have time for that. Oh, okay, but, yeah, yeah. But just, but just the point is, we didn't know that, right? Well, and there's a direct connection, yeah. right? The intended... Um, uh, and there was a big federal investigation, and, like, the whole... Like, people went to jail for, for crimes related to colluding with China to swing the election. Like, it was a real thing. Like, it's not like a... And the... There's a direct connection even. The, the intended beneficiary of the last foreign meddling scandal is married to the intended victim of the current one. So there's a direct through line between the two incidences. But no one knows that the other one even happened. And that's like... <laughs> okay. I want to uh, just take... Appreciated the example of the scale of debate and dialogue. And I think it's really important for this discussion. We haven't gone either way far enough. Because the debate goes into, I think somebody did mention anger, but then there's attacks and canceling and assassinations and mass shootings. You know, where do we draw the line there of freedom? We haven't talked about that tonight. On the other side, we talked about... If y'all want to stay, I've got material till one. Right, right. And and going the other way, we've talked about dialogue. And in debate, it's not too respectful, but in dialogue, we're adding respect to it. And we're looking for restoration. We're looking for those things. But we haven't talked about the next one or more. And that's where you really get to cultural competence. You get to consensus building. You get to real joint problem solving. And when we get to that consensus building and problem solving, all of a sudden, all these cultural differences become an asset rather than a problem. Shane, and we can Shane, come up with better solutions. Yeah. Did, did you coin those terms you used? Restoration culture and what, what was the other? I think we just Have made them restor- restorative Cause, culture. Because I'm telling you, if, if, you just, if you just thought of that, 
I, I feel like I feel like you need the world needs it. You need to go home and write about it and now, get it out there. Now let me be clear about something. My students and people who work with me know I try to take credit for everything. <laughs> but in this instance, no, I I did not coin that. It is something that is um, starting to gain. Uh, it's starting to snowball and it's starting to become ever present in the cancel culture conversation. Is what? How does this look different? Um, how can we think of step two, step three, step four after someone has been canceled or someone has committed an atrocity uh, that is repulsive? So I, I, I did and, not. And, yes. you know, human beings seem to do so much better when we have a goal we can aim for, you yeah. know, and, and, and it, that feels like a, a positive thing that can mobilize us. On this, but also connected to what we were doing last week with Greg Hurwitz. So Greg Hurwitz came to campus. He's, he's a, he works for the Democratic Party. I'm not going to go into all the details about what he's trying to do to sort of move the conversation to something that is more away from the polarization, more toward the common ground that exists among the majority of both Democrats and Republicans. And, and give you a sense of how successful he is, he was working in 30 swing states for the Democrats. They flipped 21 of them. Um, so very effective. But going to what Shane's talking about here, this restorative part, a lot of what Greg was talking about is actually rooted in this restorative framework that he started learning about as he was trying to understand how you bring divided cultures or, or communities together after atrocities had been committed. And in fact, I had, we had a, a number of exchanges going back when he was in South Africa and he had gone to the Reconciliation Council Museum. And then Rwanda, we've seen a lot of this. Restorative justice is an important part of Native American culture. It goes back centuries. It's been part. So the different elements of it. And what I think is cool, and I'm glad because I've learned something, that in this space, this is becoming more, more recognized. And if you look at some of what Shane's talking about, which I also do some of that in my social entrepreneurship class in particular, other, it's this human connection which really ends up resulting in cultural change. And that, and the norms change when you have that and you can make it widespread. Can I speak a little bit? Just because it seems like super relevant even to, like it seems very in touch with the work that, with your book on, on sexual, so, so one of my colleagues at Columbia, Seamus Khan, he wrote an essay recently talking about why it is that there's this paradox where social scientists um, often underscore the importance of restorative justice over retributive justice, except when, strangely, we have this kind of exception as it relates to sort of sexual um, sexual assault or things like this. And the, the, the problem, though, that Seamus highlights, because he, he does a lot of work on sexuality, is that when we look at what are the reasons that women don't report that they've been assaulted, one of the main reasons is because they know their offender, and it's not just that they're worried about retaliation for themselves, it's that they don't want to destroy this person necessarily. Like, they want to, to make it clear that wrong has been done, and they want some kind of uh, redress, but they don't necessarily want to destroy this person in their so, career so and their whole life. we care about each other in this way. And so... We, we, we have to matter to each other. And so if there were forms of intervention and, and, and you know, different forms right. of justice that, that didn't, that sort of lowered the stakes of coming forward, not just for the for the victim, but also for the accused, it would actually, ironically, make victims a lot of victims more willing to come forward and have their the what you know ha, and have wrongs redressed. Absolutely, because uh, yeah, yeah that, I, I'm convinced with my work on campus sexual assault that that's absolutely true. And by the way, it's not. I mean, and I know you didn't mean this, but it's not just women; it's men, and it's everyone along the spectrum, LGBTQ plus, whatever that might be. 
It's just in each of these communities, if we want to call them communities, have different kinds of barriers that they have that they that have to be addressed. But there's no doubt in my mind, and actually this is probably where I really became completely immersed in the restorative culture. It gets back to this human connection. That at the end of the day, what when you have a culture that recognizes the humanity and the human dignity of all the members, all the members of that community, that's when you get the kind of change. You can begin to have dialogue that actually moves the needle. And this is why I agree to disagree. This is why Power of We, this is why the Village Square is is really important because you're reestablishing a, a human connection. And I think it's gone so far off the rails on campuses because we have too many classes that are 150 students, 100 students. You can't, it's all about the information that's being imparted, not about the human connection, which actually forms the foundation of higher education. That's so, why we're here. Yeah. We're going to let you ask the a short question, even though we're over, and then I'm going to ask you guys to sort of think of what you want to leave with these fine, uh, this fine group of people. So Nathan, take it home. Fairly short. All right, it's actually a pretty good segue what you were just saying. Hi, everybody. I'm Nathan. I work with the Center for Leadership and Social Change, too, and we talk a lot about sustainability of change. And this is really what this is, a social change movement. And when we look about sustainability, we say, okay, who are we serving and how are we doing it? And in community service, we talk about, okay, if we're just relying on students to go to an area or a community and provide service to them, that's perpetual. You know, it's not really changing the root cause of what's happening. And so I want to look at that in this context, too. Um, the people who change the most in college are the students. And so if we're continually trying to change the student culture, that's perpetual. It's not going to change the root issue. And so when you're talking about uh, professors and administrators who bring these environments in which students can change to the forefront of the university policy, and that's what's not happening, in my opinion, enough. And, and Shane's a good example of that. And so what I want to do is ask why are we relying on students to bring these diverse perspectives so often? And when we have these large lectures, two, three hundred students, why aren't we providing different perspectives of the lecture material to the students and saying, okay, come ask questions and test them on those different uh, perspectives so that we can measure the success? And then in the student um, course reviews at the end of the, of the period, ask them about that. How did you learn about different perspectives in this course? That's how we're going to get to the bottom of this change, in my opinion. Oh, okay, so at Heterodox Academy, yeah, this is this is another one of those um, realizations that we've had over time as we study the study the problem too. Is that is that the focus on on students as a means of of addressing the problem isn't especially from the media and stuff is kind of misplaced because the the, the more durable infrastructure is, as you noted, it's the faculty, it's the administrators, um, it's the culture that they co-create. And, uh, it's the, it's the materials that they produce, you know, to, 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 like the readings they provide, et cetera, right? And so this, this was part of the approach behind Heterodox Academy in general was to focus more on the sort of durable infrastructure. And this is also why we folded in graduate students more recently is because, um, similarly, these grad students are around for a while, you know, especially if you're in a PhD program, it's five to seven years and they become the next generation of professors on, on top of that. Um, so I think you're totally on point. And uh, we need, you know, all our new hires need to be shamed. I mean, that, I mean that that type of approach to thinking about education. You say no. Um, no, I mean, so, but what I mean by that, I think this is important for understanding why what's happening at FSU is important. Um, first of all, this discussion, I think, is productive. What would not have happened without power of we, without agree to disagree, where we're getting us, the students are validating that this is important, that this is a, an issue. FSU is actually committed 
to this kind of change. Power of we is funded out of the president's office, not student government association. Agree to disagree gets some enough. We always want more support. But anyway, in the College of Social Sciences, our dean believes this is important. He's branding the college in part on the importance of respecting diversity. This is where, but what I've seen in my eight years at FSU is that the administration is limited on what it can do. Faculty are limited on what they can do. The change agents are the students, but they can't sustain it. Getting that leadership to fold in and support the students and then having faculty like Shane who are willing to commit to this being part of who they are and what they do day to day is what ends up shifting, I mean, changing the needle in a fundamental way. So, so, so Shane, we're, we've kept these folks a little bit long, so I want to go ahead and, you want to say something? Let me make it real quick. Okay. Is that, thank you for the compliment, <laughs> but I think that there, uh, if there were a bunch of me, it'd be a monolithic community. It would be annoying, right? <laughs> it, it would be loud. It would be a bunch of things that, that, the, uh, we want to establish community, okay? And we want to establish, uh, and we want to give credit to, and we want to be aware of individuality. And then within that individuality, build relationships, okay? And to have people create this, this thing and a culture of communication and a culture of well-being and care and uh, a culture that has, uh, uh, Different lived experiences and ages and yes. So cool. So, um, at, so let me close. I actually wrote some things down. Um, so, uh, I just want to acknowledge the fact that with the exception of Liz, who's great, um, this has been a panel of all men, right? And a man, uh, two men of color, one identifying white man. And we haven't necessarily heard the, the, the depth of perspective of someone who was a part of the panel who was a, outside of Liz, who could contribute to this, or someone who's not a part of the gender binary that we have here. Um, So I just want to acknowledge that and to further it. So someone I I really respect and look up to, uh, and I I have been built and developed by communities and villages and structures that are very women heavy, right? And a lot of my family. So, um, Grace Lee Boggs, if you haven't heard of her, please look her up. Uh, Grace Lee Boggs. And she talks about having a beloved community. And I like her, her phraseology and her, um, her words around what a beloved community looks like. And, uh, that is the idea to think, to think of community as an agent of change, moving away from self-interest and isolation and moving toward well-being of the whole and a shared sense of belonging. So that is respecting your individuality amongst the community. She then identifies five different points, and that is learning, common issues, self-transformation, and structure transformation. They have to be married, coupled, and pushed simultaneously. So we do not highlight or target an individual. That happens in a lot of movements where if they cut off the head of the snake, which is the leader, then the body then fails, right? Um, but we want to respect that individuality as well as the community as a whole and respecting those leaders that are part of the movement. Um, so I violated my own rule 
school and that we're we're pretty late. So two more things, and I apologize. Is responsibility for being a part of the solution, and the last thing is making principled and intentional choices. Thanks, thanks, Shane. I'm going to be nicer to my facilitators from now on because I don't think I've ever let them go this long. So fairly short closing. Uh, how can I do anything short? I think, well, one, thank you for this conversation. I think it's important. I think it, it's something, as someone who has come in from the outside of the academy, seen what's happened at Florida State, it's been a transformative experience for me as an adult. And it's been interesting as I've plowed into each of these different identities, which have not just been political, but also racial, gender-based, all sorts of different ways to think about this. And realizing how much of what Shane just outlined is really the solution to this. It's a question of putting it into practice. And it's going to be fits and starts. There are going to be failures. But it's about dynamic change. It's about organic growth to the extent that it's then reinforced by institutional structures that keep these as, as core values. I think we've got the beginnings of this at Florida State very encouraging, uh, certainly when we look at us compared to what happens at other universities. Yeah, uh, so my last thoughts, I mean, I'm just grateful to be here, for one, and thank you again to Liz and to the Village Square. I guess, like, my, my parting thought would be, I think sometimes when we're engaging with people who are, like, very different from us, we expect a little too much out of the conversations. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's this kind of expectation sometimes that two people will be on polar opposite sides of, of some issue, and by the end of the conversation, either one person will move over here, this person will move over here, or they'll somehow meet in the middle. And that's not usually the case. I mean, sometimes the disagreements are about things that are deep, and, uh, and they're not going to be resolved, and we have to be okay with being able to live with those differences, right? That's the whole point of, of liberal democracy, etc. It's like, how can we live despite differences? And I think sort of the, a better target to aim for in a lot of cases, is if you can walk away from a conversation having been heard, having been really understood, and having truly understood where the other person is coming from, that's huge. And secondarily, just understanding that that the other, walking away from the conversation with the understanding, not just an abstract understanding, but a concrete understanding that the person, that people can hold a different view than you on one of these fundamental issues that you care about for reasons other than the fact that they're stupid or crazy or ignorant or, you know, uh, something like that. That, that. that there's, like, reasonable disagreement and uh, room for that. And that there's ambiguity and complexity. Just walking away from the conversation with that is huge, right? And I think, like, this should be the kind of goals that we aim for sometimes rather than this kind of, like, winning or both sides Figuring middle. Figuring out what or, the answer is. Exactly, yeah, like Israel, Palestine, we're going to yeah. resolve it right here, yeah. right now, right? Like, no, <laughs> that's not the way it works, right? Yeah. Thank you. So. Thank you for, for joining us. Uh, I hope you guys will join me and thank our panel. For- Hi again. It's Vanessa here, your podcast host. What a great program, right? Let's hear it for all the panelists and the students who participated to make this program awesome. I loved the engaging dialogue and the back and forth of differing views. And I think the focus on restoration and redemption is very wise and has to be part of the equation. Otherwise, what will we have accomplished with the damage alone? All right, to close out today's show, I'd like to say a word to my colleague, Eliza Chase. 
She was one of the FSU students on this episode before either of us was at the Village Square. She's the one who said that she got burned for an opinion she had. Also, by the way, you might remember Eliza from episode 35, Created Equal, Stretching Towards Freedom. She's incredible, y'all. But if you're engaged with the Village Square, you already knew that. Anyway, Eliza, I hear you. I hear you. And thank you for being brave enough to share your story with us, despite being burned in the past. You know that I identify as being on the left, and I'd have to say more center left after all that I've learned in 40 plus Village Square programs. But there are some issues where I feel like I fall more with the right and cancel culture is an example for exactly the reasons that you and Issa, who spoke before you, pointed out. You know, we've aired a few programs now where the guests and left-leaning guests, I might add, have talked about how poorly the left has treated the right for a long time now. I'll have to admit, and maybe you'll cancel me for this later, I didn't see it at first, and I didn't really believe it was such a major problem as these experts were describing. Well, after that seed was planted in my head a few months ago, now I see it everywhere. And your story is just the latest example. I don't even need to know any details about what actually happened. I know you to be the opposite of what was said about you online. I value your opinions. I grow from every interaction that I have with you. And I love just hanging out. And I know that if any of those people actually bothered to have a conversation with you, they'd shift their opinion. So on that note, Let's consider the point that was raised earlier about the amazing things that can happen when people have a shared goal or a superordinate identity that binds them together. Well, I think we do. We are Americans who want to fix and sustain democracy. So here's to you for being part of this movement. Let's also give a shout out to Carrie Roth and Wellington Meffert whose generosity helped to make this episode possible. And a huge thank you to Florida Humanities for partnering with us to present this podcast series, Created Equal and Breathing Free, which will air right here on Village Squarecast through the end of the year. Subscribe to Village Squarecast wherever you listen to podcasts. And to stay up to date with all that's happening at the Village Square, including our new season of programming that is now underway, subscribe to our newsletter at villagesquare.us. We appreciate you listening to Respect and Rebellion, the state of debate on campus. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon. And thank you so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Cast.